This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. The wheat fields are growing tall and the heads are quickly shooting up the boots. So now is the yearly question, to fungicide or not to fungicide? The reason why this is a yearly question in wheat fields is because the answer is never straightforward. A lot of factors have to be considered. First off, we need to consider the stage of the wheat and the timing of application. Nearly 90% of yield comes from the last two leaves, and mostly the last leaf, known as the flag leaf. Fungicides are not systemic. They only protect the leaf area in which they were sprayed on. So, research has shown that spraying fungicide before the flag leaf emergence will have little yield response. Also, the fungicide will only protect the weed head if directly sprayed on. Most fungicides will protect the contacted leaf or head for only two to three weeks. However, by the time the flag leaf and head emerges, and it takes a couple of weeks for the fungal infection to take hold, that two to three weeks of fungified protection is all that is needed. The actual question of whether to spray fungicide comes down to if the yield increase will be worth the cost. The average yield response to fungicides was acceptable or moderately susceptible in the studied fungus was 10%. A resistant variety to a certain fungus only has a 12% chance of yield response to a fungicide application. If a yield variety has a good set of resistances to multiple diseases, most years is not going to make a difference in yield to apply fungicide. This, however, depends on how much pressure from fungal diseases is in the region and within the field. Regional pressure relates to the rust diseases and a high level of regional pressure indicated by outbreaks locally and worsening rust conditions in Oklahoma can make fungicide applications more relevant. Upcoming weather forecasts of cool and wet conditions, favorable to rust and most fungal diseases, that can be a factor as well. Within the field, fungus in the lower canopy on susceptible varieties means the chances are above average for a fungicide response. The tire crush from a sprayer is a consideration as well. A tire crush of 3 feet on a 60-foot boom is a 5% loss. This is a moot point if the late top dress has already crushed the tire tracks because the sprayer can run in the same tracks. But it is harder to justify a modest yield increase from a fungicide application when 5% is lost from the tires. The last point to fungicide decision is putting it all together. It comes down to how the wheat market is doing, how the current yield potential for the field is looking, and will the increase in profit from spraying be worth the cost of fungicide, the sprayer costs, and the possible tire crush. Farmers are also considering adding pesticides into their applications as well. At this point, it rarely pays to treat for aphids. It takes a whole lot of aphids, around 50 per tiller, to have much of an effect on yield. Although aphids carry barley yellow dwarf, an infection of the virus at this point won't have enough time to make any yield difference. But the real issue with preventative spraying to control aphids is that it will kill the beneficials and only most of the aphids. The aphids then can come back with their incredible reproduction rates. Really, farmers need to be watching out for the armyworms that can strip entire flag leaves in the matter of days. If there are any questions about fungicide applications in wheat, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. For some, spring in the air creates anticipation of digging in the soil or processing calves and turning to summer pastures. For horse lovers, spring is getting into peak riding season. Adventures on horseback across the nation are being planned, but what happens when serious contagious disease threatens these plans? 
vesicular stomatitis virus hit us just two years ago, leading county fairs and play day plans to make major adjustments. So let's dig into some biosecurity tips. Simply put, biosecurity is a set of practices that are adopted to prevent and reduce the spread of disease. These practices are especially important when traveling to and from different facilities with your horse. By bringing your horse to a new barn, arena, or campsite, you're increasing their risk of disease exposure. Conversely, you can increase the risk of exposure to horses back home when returning your horse from a trip. Before you leave, work with a veterinarian to stay up to date on vaccines. Pack cleaning supplies and disinfectants. Diluted bleach is an inexpensive disinfectant. Just mix eight ounces of bleach with one gallon of water. Any horse with signs of fever, nasal discharge, and diarrhea should stay home. When making plans for equine travels, use your own trailer for hauling. Avoid having your horse hauled with horses from outside your barn. While you're away, wash hands with soapy water as often as possible. Clean and disinfect stalls at the show or campsite. Make sure surfaces are dry and clean before applying disinfectants. Avoid sharing buckets, hay bags, grooming tools, tack, or equipment, including the water hose that fills water buckets. Disinfect the hose nozzle and hold the hose above the water bucket when filling buckets. Don't allow horses to have nose-to-nose -nose contact or share grazing space. Limit the general public's contact with your horse and your contact with other horses. After your event and you're home again, Isolate the horse that is circulated in society for 14 days. During this time, monitor for signs of fever, nasal discharge, or diarrhea. Wash your hands, shower, and change clothes and shoes before working with horses kept at home. Disinfect buckets, hay bags, and other equipment. If possible, designate items for home use only or travel use only. Finally, clean and disinfect the horse trailer. An ounce of prevention can keep your horse healthy throughout the trail and show season. Vaccinating, keeping equipment and facilities clean, and avoiding contact with other horses are all good practices. Preparing and following a biosecurity plan is key to preventing disease in your horse and other horses at your barn. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Moles are small mammals that spend most of their lives in underground burrows. They are similar in appearance and size to shrews and meadow mice and may occupy the same habitat. They are seldom seen by humans and when seen they are frequently mistaken for mice or shrews. Only one species, the eastern mole, lives in Kansas. The most conspicuous features of the mole are the greatly enlarged paddle-like forefeet and prominent toenails which enable the mole to literally swim through the soil. Their legs are strong, their neck is short, and their head is elongated. Moles lack external ears and their eyes are so small that at first glance they appear to be missing. A mole's fur is soft and brown to grayish with silver highlights. 
When brushed, the fur offers no resistance in either direction. This enables the mole to travel either backwards or forward within burrows. Moles may be found in woodlands, grasslands, and lawns. They construct extensive underground passageways, shallow surface tunnels for spring, summer, and fall, and deep permanent tunnels for winter use. Nest cavities are located underground, connecting with the deep tunnels. Moles have high energy requirements. They actively feed day and night at all times of the year. They feed on mature insects and snail larvae, spiders, small vertebrates, earthworms, and occasionally take small amounts of vegetation. Earthworms and white grubs are their favorite foods. Moles prefer loose, sandy loam soils and avoid heavy, dry clay soils. Mole activity in lawns or fields usually shows up as ridges of upheaved soil created where the runways were constructed as the animals moved about foraging food. Some of these tunnels are used as travel lanes and may be abandoned immediately after being dug. Mounds of soil called mole hills may be brought to the surface of the ground as moles dig deep permanent tunnels and nest cavities. Moles in the natural environment cause little damage. They are seldom noticed until their tunneling activity becomes apparent in lawns, gardens, golf courses, pastures, or other grass and turf areas. The upheaved ridges of mole tunnels make lawn mowing difficult. Since the roots are disturbed, grass may turn brown and unsightly. Moles rarely eat flower buds, ornamental, or other vegetative material. While tunneling, but plants may be physically disturbed as moles tunnel in search of animal organisms in the soil. Mole activity may indirectly damage vegetation, but their feeding on insects and other soil organisms is beneficial. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Companion planting is the act of putting two different plants close to each other for certain benefits. These benefits could be insect damage control, nutrient management, or microclimate adjustment. Most of the time, when you see gardeners talking or asking about companion planting, it will be to prevent insect damage. However, outside of one small study by Iowa State University, there is little research to determine if certain plants do have insect repelling properties or if the praise for companion planting is instead caused by other variables. The Iowa State study investigated five popular companion crops, planted among five common garden vegetables, and tracked the relative damage in each plot. In every vegetable, the control plots always showed the most damage relative to companion plant plots, which provides evidence that planting multiple species together will always invite less pest pressure than one single crop. The reasons for this will likely vary from pest to pest, but can include smells, visual distractions, less of a sustainable food source for the insects, or better habitats for pest 
predators. The five companion plant species each had a different relative effectiveness when observing across crops and pests, but one specific result will be of interest to gardeners in our area. Squash bugs and the striped cucumber beetle on zucchini. Planting marigolds around zucchini plants will significantly reduce the damage from both pests, and nasturtiums had a similar effect on reducing the population of squash bugs. If you struggle at growing zucchini from year to year, putting some marigolds or nasturtiums nearby may give your plants the edge they need to pull through high insect pressures. Planting legumes in your garden, among other vegetables, is a way to replace any nitrogen that is used by your other plants. Legumes have roots that house beneficial bacteria, and these bacteria will pull nitrogen out of the air and put it back in the soil for plants to use. Nitrogen is the plant nutrient responsible for the growth of leaves and stems. Unfortunately, most soils in our area will not have enough nitrogen to sustain a vegetable garden over multiple years without consistent fertilization. Planting legumes like beans or peas will not only keep your plants healthier, but will also cut down on your need to fertilize and give you some produce in return. Just keep in mind that nitrogen added by legumes will often be secondary unless plantings are exceedingly thick, and at the size of backyard vegetable gardens, legumes should be considered supplemental instead of your primary nitrogen source. The final type of companion plant is one that provides climate or structure benefits. One good example of this is the Three Sisters. Pastoral Native American tribes like the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara would often plant corn, beans, and squash together. The corn would provide a natural trellis for the beans to climb up, the beans, being legumes, would add nitrogen back to the soil, and the squash would sprawl across the ground, increasing water retention by keeping sunlight from hitting the bare earth and speeding up evaporation. You can use sprawling or spreading plants like creeping thyme in your garden to have many of the same benefits as mulching wood. Creeping thyme is also effective as an insect repellent and as an herb, making it one of the most efficient companion plants you can add to your garden. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.